Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Is it true that the only difference between Stalin and Hitler is that Stalin was a successful murderous predator? With Hitler dead and the Third Reich in ruins, Stalin created an immense new communist empire, the ramifications of which we still live with today. To tell us more about all of this, we have Sean Meakin on the podcast. Sean is the author of a new book, Stalin's War, published by Penguin. It's described as both revisionist and provocative in the way that it reassesses Stalin, but also Churchill and Roosevelt. Now, I'm going to leave it to you to decide whether or not you agree with Sean or not, but here he is on Stalin's War. Enjoy. Hi, Sean. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Not too bad, James. Uh, How about yourself? Pleasure to be here. I'm good, thank you. Yes. Now, congratulations on the new book. We're talking about brighter things here, Stalin's War, which has been described as a provocative new revisionist take on Stalin himself. So tell us, Sean, what makes it new and provocative? Well, I suppose it's not necessarily my take on Stalin. I mean, Stalin has taken some brickbats over the years. He's not someone who's universally admired, although he is kind of admired to a somewhat surprising extent in modern Russia. And of course, even in his home country, country of origin of Georgia in the West, he's not generally speaking particularly admired. I think it's probably more my interpretation of the war, that is to say, putting Stalin a little bit closer to the center of the story of the Second World War, both in terms of its kind of long-term origins, its outbreaking even in September 1939, and its consequences. So that I suppose to some extent simply kind of uh, shifting the lens to the East. It's not that Hitler and Nazi Germany don't feature in the story. Of course they do. I just tell it from a slightly different perspective, a slightly different angle, placing obviously more emphasis on Stalin's role, the origins, the outbreak, and particularly the aftermath of the war than I think is traditionally done by most Second World War historians. So perhaps Stalin as a little bit more as of an antagonist than is perhaps traditionally seen. So does Stalin not get to be seen as a good allied partner? Does he not deserve to sit as Uncle Joe, as a victor over fascism next to Churchill and Roosevelt? Well, clearly, there's a lot of whitewashing that's been done over the years, and not just in Russia, mind you, about Stalin and his role in the war. In fact, there's a strange, almost a kind of a caesure, a gap, if you look at the literature, particularly from the American perspective, where on the one hand, people were 
generally speaking, familiar with Stalin's role in the purges and the show trials and the oppression and the terror and the famine. Perhaps people weren't as well informed in the 1930s as they are now. And then, of course, after the end of the Second World War with the onset of the Cold War, Stalin is once again kind of this great antagonist. But somehow for this period in between, he emerges as the plucky ally, Uncle Joe, and the valued ally in some ways, the decisive or the key contributor to the victory over Nazi Germany. I've always found it a little bit strange that Stalin could wear these different hats and that suddenly for this period, um, he wasn't the mass murdering butcher. He wasn't the aggressor against small nations who had invaded six European nations between 1939 and 1941. That it was all just kind of overlooked and swept under the rug. And in some cases, such as in the, the case of the Katyn massacre, as we usually call it now, the U.S. and Britain even officially whitewashed it and effectively took the side of Soviet propaganda in denying that it was a Soviet crime, even for some years into the early Cold War. So I always think it's worth revisiting. It's worth asking the hard questions about what the Western allies were really up to and whether uh, all of this kind of deception and lying and propaganda to whitewash the Soviet Union perhaps was necessary from some tactical sense during the war. But I don't think historians have to be so diplomatic. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as our listeners know, I live in Denmark and I took myself last summer out to Bornholm. I was giving a talk out there. And deep within the island is this Soviet military graveyard memorial that was revamped in the 1980s. And just across it is the German military graveyard. And the Soviet one is just like a military parading ground that is there as a lasting memory to the Soviet liberation, the Red Army's liberation of Denmark from Nazi oppression. And it's one that is revisited every year by troops coming to visit and to remind the West, to remind that NATO ally that it was the Red Army that liberated them from fascism. But what you're saying here is perhaps we should be very careful of that narrative. Well, I think that's true. The Red Army, I suppose one could say, liberated Eastern Europe from the Nazis and certainly the death camps, for example, most of which were in occupied Poland, were liberated by the Red Army. However, of course, in the course of liberating these countries. The Red Army also looted these countries and committed great atrocities. In the case of Poland, continued doing so well into 1946 and 1947. The case of the Baltic states being kind of reconquered or even Ukraine. Civil wars were still breaking out, guerrilla wars, uh, partisan conflicts after the war. So it was quite bloody. Obviously, the behavior of the Red Army crashing into East Prussia, this is controversial. Even a very mainstream historian such as Antony Beaver got in a bit of hot water, particularly with the Russian authorities when he started talking about the mass rapes committed by the Red Army soldiers, the looting, the occupation, much of which was not simply accepted by the Western powers, but actually in a certain legal sense endorsed by them at Yalta when they actually codified the idea that reparations could be taken in humankind in the form of slave labor. And at times, Stalin was actually quite open about this, discussing the use of slave laborers in the Soviet Union, those taken as prisoners of war and then, of course, put to work in forced labor camps back in the Soviet Union. The human reparations that were taken in addition to the financial and industrial reparations that were taken in the form of property, in the form of industrial equipment, manufacturing equipment, uh, technology transfer and all the rest. The Soviets weren't particularly shy about all of this either. They negotiated it in a quite kind of upfront sense. Yalta some of which had already been codified in the so-called Morgenthau Plan, inked at Quebec between Churchill and Roosevelt in September 1944. And obviously the Soviet argument was, 
in view of the tremendous devastation wrought by the German invasion of the Soviet Union, they were entitled to these as just desserts. It's just astonishing maybe to be reminded today that they weren't simply demanding financial reparations, but also human reparations. That slave labor was actually quite an accepted part of the Soviet system, and they weren't especially shy about it either. Now, before we go into some of these myths that you debunk about Stalin's war, I'm always fascinated to learn from other historians about where your research took you. I asked this to Ian Johnson, a mutual friend of ours, and his research for the book Faustian Bargain took him around some amazing archives and some sticky situations. Where did your research take you? Well, I certainly did a lot of research in Russia, the vast majority of it in and around Moscow. I also did research in Poland, which was quite interesting. I never worked there. I did have to use a translator because although I can make out Bulgarian because it's close enough to Russian that I can more or less kind of poke my way through the archives. And then obviously with a little bit of a help from translation dictionaries, make sure that I'm getting the nuances. Polish is substantially different from Russian, so I had to use a translator there. But honestly, I think the archives in Bulgaria yielded some of the most surprising nuggets in the book, particularly in this period 1940, the period when the Balkans had kind of emerged almost as the center of geopolitical gravity in the war, both with Mussolini's invasion of Greece, but also the onrushing tension between Stalin and Hitler, and obviously their adjutants, deputies, advisors, diplomats, etc., over Balkan resources, over Romania, with Stalin's demands for the Soviet right to occupy Bulgaria and send troops to garrison the Turkish Straits. This period in the war, which again is kind of often overlooked or glossed over rather quickly because everyone just assumes, well, we're going to skip ahead to Barbarossa. And that's where most accounts of the war on the Eastern Front start, of course. They start on June 22nd, 1941. They leave out all the earlier parts, which complicate the narrative and complicate the story. And so in the Bulgarian archives, among other things, I actually discovered a kind of one of Hitler's rants that I don't think had actually been discovered before when he was presented with Stalin's rather peremptory demands that in exchange for joining the tripartite pact as something like an equal partner, Stalin demanded that, that is to say, joining Italy and Japan and Germany, we usually call them the Axis, but the actual formal term of art was the tripartite pact. So for joining the tripartite pact, Stalin wanted the Germans to remove most of their troops and equipment from Finland, from Romania, and he also wanted, as I pointed out, the right to garrison both Bulgaria and the Turkish Straits, also various demands vis-a-vis Japan on Sakhalin Island. And Hitler was so shocked by this, it seemed kind of like an ultimatum that he went on one of these three-and-a-half-hour rants, where he pretty much said, now I know what to expect from Stalin, what he's up to. And this is on December 3rd, 1940, which actually fits the timing of what we now know about the Germans moving ahead with their plans for what would become Operation Barbarossa. The initial plans actually date to mid-December 1940. And so that was quite surprising. So I did travel through Eastern Europe as much as I could. I mean, in Russia, to be frank, a lot of the archives that I'm interested in, they're getting a little bit tougher to access, and I'm not actually sure they're going to let me back into them after this book came out. So those adventures, uh, I treasure them in part because I may not be able to repeat the experience. Well, take us back through this reappraisal of Stalin's war then. How far back should we go here? Is this back to Manchuria? Is this back even further? Where does your reappraisal of Stalin begin? Well, I suppose I go back even further still simply to try to understand the origins of Soviet foreign policy and the thinking of someone like Stalin who came out of this tradition, as had Lenin before him, he viewed international affairs as something like this kind of binary world where you have, of course, the communist world and the non-communist world, and they're in this state of hostility, not necessarily always in terms of armed conflict, but they're always kind of precariously balanced. There's this view of the imperialist powers, the capitalist powers as 
they're obviously hostile to the communist world, but there's enough sophistication to realize that they're often at loggerheads with one another so that you have the idea of imperialism, almost the civil war between the imperialist powers. So this is how they view the First World War. And this is how Stalin starts talking about the world crisis beginning in the mid-1930s as it looks like Europe is kind of coming closer to a war between the Western powers. So the key then becomes how you're going to approach that. And to some extent, it's the mirror imaging of, let's say, a British view where we'll obviously be better off from the British perspective. And this is maybe what Chamberlain is kind of half hoping at Munich. If he can avoid the war between the Western powers and Hitler, postpone it as long as possible, then maybe Hitler will instead invade the Soviet Union. And from Stalin's perspective, of course, he wants the opposite. He does not want to be embroiled in a war with Hitler before the Soviet Union is ready. And so to that extent, it becomes actually a desirable, a kind of scenario that Stalin is either favoring or hoping to bring about, where a war is going to break out between Hitler and the Western powers. You can begin to see this already, although the formal line of Soviet foreign policy in the months before Munich and even to some extent into 1939, is that the Soviets do believe in some kind of effort to contain Hitler. Collective security is never really Stalin's policy. Litvinov, the foreign affairs commissar, is actually quietly demoted from the European desk as early as 1937. The Soviets start dropping hints about a partition of Poland through back channels and Soviet theoretical journals beginning in 1938. They're also already beginning to investigate reopening some of those economic and trade ties with Germany, which dated back to Rapallo, the secret agreement of 1922, where the Germans had been allowed to design and test and manufacture weapons in Soviet territory. And the Soviets are hoping to place new orders with the German kind of military industrial complex in that winter of 38-39. So it's not that Stalin necessarily had some grand design where he knew exactly how everything would play out with the crystal ball. There was some flexibility in the way that he approached international affairs that I think he definitely saw it as in the Soviet interests both to avoid being plunged into a European war before the Soviet Union was ready, but also if an opportunity came up and there was a war between the European powers, and that would actually suit Soviet interests quite well. So the courting, you might say, of Hitler and Nazi Germany begins first very subtly with a speech in March 1939, I kind of call the chestnut speech, where Stalin kind of hints that he does not want to be lured into this war against Hitler, and he's not going to be used as a kind of a pawn or a tool of the Western powers, not going to pull their chestnuts out of the fire for them. And then continues in May with the sacking of Litvinov, the Jewish foreign affairs commissar, and the purging of the Soviet foreign ministry of Jews. These are pretty clear signals that Stalin is at least willing to negotiate with Hitler. Of course, the terms of the negotiation were still quite open, but I think implicit in those negotiations all along was that Stalin was hoping that by coming to terms with Hitler over some kind of partition of Poland, dividing up of Eastern Europe into spheres of influence, this would turn Hitler's attention to the West against the Western powers in much the same way, and perhaps we can revisit this as we go. Stalin was hoping to redirect Japan's attention in Asia and the Pacific away from the Soviet Far Eastern frontier and into a more direct confrontation or some kind of confrontation with the Anglo-Saxon powers in the Pacific. So really, Stalin's plans are going quite well, up until the point at which Hitler decides to turn and attack. But had Stalin not already been planning an attack on the Third Reich? And did Hitler know this? Well, there are two separate questions there. I mean, first, you're right, it does go well for Stalin. In some ways, however, it actually goes better for Stalin in Asia, where to some extent, this kind of 
capitalist war, a war between the capitalist powers who were destroying each other, the Soviets are able to stay neutral virtually for the entirety of the conflict until right at the end when Japan has been seriously weakened. In Europe, it goes well for a while, but of course what Stalin hadn't really reckoned on or counted on was just how well the German armies would perform. That is, he was hoping for more of a kind of a war of attrition, a little bit along the lines of an amped up version of the First World War, where they would bloody each other pretty badly, and then the Soviets would be able to intervene at a moment perhaps of their choosing. I didn't know when that would be, but obviously he was hoping it would be at a time when Germany would have been seriously weakened. Instead, of course, the Germans pull off these series of coups, first in Poland with Soviet help, later on with Denmark and Norway, and then France and the Low Countries. And the Germans are really hardly weakened at all. If anything, they're actually strengthened because they have a larger resource base now to draw on than they had in, in 1939. As far as Soviet plans, it's kind of the second part of your question. Soviet plans, I think, for a war with Germany they certainly were planning and preparing for a war with Germany. There's simply no doubt about that if you look at actual deployment patterns and expenditure and basically where they're sort of stationing some of their key equipment, particularly air bases and tank parks and petrol stations in 1941. This isn't to say they had a precise scenario where they knew exactly when that war would start. In fact, if you look at some of the plans, they're still assuming the Germans will strike first, but they're hoping the Germans will somehow telegraph it in such a way that they'll be able to stage a kind of a counteroffensive. They don't really begin to talk about the idea of almost forestalling the adversary or the Russian phrase, prativnika. you begin to see that phrase in May 1941. But even then, it's not clear, of course. I don't think Stalin and his generals knew. They certainly couldn't have known that they would necessarily have that opportunity. I do think in the end, they were caught somewhat by surprise, not by the fact that the war broke out, but that the Germans were able to conduct their war preparations so swiftly. I mean, really, the Germans are, after all, they're busy in the Balkans right through May 1941. And somehow they're able to actually gear up for this massive invasion of the Soviet Union with their allies just in a matter of weeks in May and June 1941. I think that actually did catch Stalin and his generals by surprise. Yes, a shocking and rapid pace at which you start to see Hitler's forces move through the Soviet Union and Stalin's desperate attempt to reorganize the entire of Soviet industry so they can start rebuilding that war effort. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from History Hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So at what point then does Stalin start to reinvent himself or is he reinvented by the West as this plucky ally that needs support? Well, I think it begins right on the very day of the German invasion. That's to say a lot of Stalin's agitprop or propaganda work was done for him by the German invasion, by the simple fact that it was the Germans that invaded the Soviet Union rather than vice versa. It's hugely important, even if the Germans, again, as you point out, I mean, they make these humongous advances into Soviet territory, Belarusia, Ukraine, the Baltic area, over the next four, five, six months of 1941 until they're finally stalled outside Moscow in December. As much as they gain in terms of land and territory, and even to some extent resources, the Soviets are able to both destroy some factory capacity and evacuate some factories east. The Germans lose a tremendous amount strategically simply by the fact of effectively turning Stalin and the Soviet Union into this kind of plucky underdog. I mean, this is certainly how both Roosevelt and Churchill interpret things on the ground right away. The Soviets are in trouble. They desperately need our support. The heroic Russian people are resisting Nazi Germany. And so they start lavishing, of course, Lend-Lease aid and uh, shipments of Churchill's case, the famous 200 Hawker Hurricane Fighters workhorse of the RAF and first of hundreds more to come, and then eventually the Valentine and Matilda tanks, and a little bit later still, all those motorized vehicles, the Studebakers, the trucks, the Jeeps, Harley-Davidson's motorized fuel and aviation fuel, refined gasoline, all those supplies that are so critical for the Red Army, even helping to revamp Russian industry. That is, a lot of the work, I think, was simply done by the simple fact of the German invasion. Now, obviously, Stalin, he had diplomats, he had agents of influence, he had kind of admirers and sympathizers in the West who helped to present the case, but I think in the end it was really just largely a matter of kind of the public relations perception. In the US, perhaps a bit less than in Britain, because there was still much more wariness and skepticism of Stalin, at least before Pearl Harbor when the US was still neutral in the war. But Roosevelt and his advisors were able to some extent to just kind of bulldoze their way through, first by hiding from the public the extent of this aid. And then after Pearl Harbor, when the US enters the war and Hitler declares war on the US, they don't have to try that hard to justify it. After that point, Stalin is an ally. So to that extent, also, Hitler, I think, kind of sealed his own doom. 
both by declaring war on the United States, but also by legitimizing, really, Stalin as a full-on ally of the West by the simple fact of declaring war on the United States. Even though, of course, Stalin never did declare war on Japan, at least not until August 1945. But he was able to get a pass on that, in large part because both Churchill and Roosevelt agreed on Germany first, on Europe first, as a priority. And then even beyond that, on aid to Russia's armies as the number one priority, basically, that that was the number one priority at the Arcadia Conference in December 1941. So, yes, yeah, Stalin, obviously, with some of his agents, admirers, diplomats, etc., helped to kind of usher this along. And perhaps it's surprising how far it went as far as the Soviets being able to simply requisition supplies from the United States as if they were tantamount to being members of the U.S. armed forces. But the basic work, I think, was already done, first with the German invasion and then with Hitler's I think, rather rash decision to declare war on the U.S. in solidarity with Japan on December 11, 1941. Well, looking in hindsight and seeing how the Cold War developed, should we also start to rethink our opinions of Churchill and Roosevelt's decision-making here? Were they right to welcome Uncle Joe with open arms? Well, I would begin by distinguishing between Roosevelt and Churchill. While it's true they reacted similarly to the initial news of the German invasion in June 1941, and Churchill went really all out for the next year or so in prioritizing the needs of Stalin and the Red Army, really even over British imperial needs, uh, defenses of Singapore, the Falker Hurricanes had been pledged to defend Singapore. They route all these tanks in 1942 up from Egypt Command, basically to help the Soviets in the Caucasus and at Stalingrad. By 1943, I think Churchill, he senses, obviously, Britain's waning power and influence. He senses the fact that by shipping, for example, aluminium or processed aluminium to Stalin, he's actually handicapping Britain's own aircraft production and potentially her long-term strategic prospects. And he does begin to curtail at least some of that aid that Britain had been sending to the Soviet Union. And he does begin, particularly Tehran, to put up a little bit more resistance than Roosevelt does to some of Stalin's demands, most famously with the so-called Mediterranean or underbelly strategy where Churchill wants to exploit the fact that the Allies by, we're talking now, end of November 1943, they already have troops in Sicily, they have troops in the mainland in Italy, about 500,000, they've got 68 landing craft, they have a new air base at Bari on the Adriatic coast, and Churchill's hoping to make some type of move, perhaps in the Adriatic, perhaps landing on the coastline of Yugoslavia, perhaps trying to bring Turkey into the war, Turkey still being neutral. And he really hopes by doing that to help shape the post-war future of the Balkans in Eastern Europe in a slightly more pro-Western or British-American direction. Roosevelt, of course, basically sides with Stalin, and he undermines Churchill, particularly over the timing of the so-called overlord operation, what would become D-Day, but also on jettisoning any idea, really, of a Mediterranean operation, literally pulling back all the landing craft to make it impossible to conduct such operations. And you can see this right up to Yalta, where Churchill is, I think, putting up much more resistance, certainly over Poland and the prospect of having actual election observers to make sure that Polish elections would be conducted according to some type of proper liberal and legal and legitimate lines as opposed to the Soviet-style elections, which were openly rigged. He definitely puts up more resistance. I do think Churchill's position and Britain's position was seriously undermined by Roosevelt. And I mean, this went back even before the Soviet entry into the war. If you look at the basis for destroyers deal and even the terms of Lend-Lease aid and the various wartime loans to Britain, Roosevelt drove a really hard bargain with Churchill. That is, there was no real united front 
against the Soviet Union during the war. Perhaps that came later, after the Fulton, Missouri speech, Churchill's so-called Iron Curtain speech with Truman announcing the Truman Doctrine and all that. But during the war, I think, I don't think we should exaggerate the idea of a united front between Britain and the United States. They really started, I think, going in different directions after 43. It's just that the U.S. had all the leverage, and so Churchill was just forced to go along. So when we combine all of this and we bring it together... Do you think it's fair or correct for us to start to think as Stalin and the Soviet Union as the greatest victor out of the Second World War? Because Stalin's able to go on and become a ruthless empire builder, whereas there's historians nowadays that potentially even say that Britain lost the war. When you look at the amount of losses and the debt that took place, America may well have won the Second World War, but was the greatest victor Stalin and the Soviet Union? Well, in territorial terms, I think it's simply inarguable, both in terms of the amount of territory Stalin literally annexed in Eastern Europe and readjusting the borders of Poland and, of course, absorbing the three Baltic states and readjusting the boundaries also with uh, Romania and with Finland. Obviously, Northern Asia as well, although eventually the Soviets surrendered much of what they had gained in Manchuria to Maoist China over the coming years after the war. The Soviets also made gains there, of course, in the Kuril Islands and Sakhalin, and at least with a satellite in North Korea, even if it was literally administered by the Soviet Union. You're right that the United States comes out of the war in a very strong position, perhaps with more of an informal empire rather than outright territorial annexations with new bases, taking over a lot of Britain's old bases and positions, in particularly in the Western Hemisphere, dating back all the way to 1940. And then ultimately, with some of Britain's commitments, places like Greece and Turkey, the architecture of the Cold War, the U.S. kind of shunts Britain to the curb, so to speak, and really uh, absorbs the British Empire in a partly friendly, but also, I think, partly hostile way. I think the US clearly does well out of the war. I do think that if you look at where the Soviet Union was in either 1939 or even to some extent 1941 after the gains of the Molotov-Ribbentrop era, the Soviets, of course, four years later are in a much, much stronger position, both territorially Perhaps they've lost immense amounts of human capital. They've lost a lot of industry. On the other hand, they've also regained that in the form of these reparations. I mean, Stalin's victory came at a much higher price, you might say, than the U.S. victory. In that sense, one might say, well, the U.S., because it didn't have to lose those tens of millions, perhaps as many as 25 or 30 million men in the war, the U.S. was obviously far less devastated in terms of its own infrastructure than the Soviet Union. So you could certainly make the case that the U.S. does nearly as well out of the war as the Soviet but I think you point to a very awkward and somewhat painful truth, which is that Britain, in a lot of ways, the truly principled member of the Allies, the ones that had stood up to Hitler alone after the fall of France in the Low Countries, at a time when the U.S. was neutral and the Soviet Union was an actually a partner of the Nazi Germany in carving up Europe, literally fueling uh, the Luftwaffe as it's bombing London in the Battle of Britain. Britain ends up losing perhaps as much as almost any other country out of the war, both in terms of the human losses, waning influence and prestige globally. And even if the empire tottered on for another decade and a half, I think it was pretty clear the British Empire was moribund, virtually bankrupt by 1945, really just kind of existing on some type of U.S. retainer, which could be withdrawn at any time, as we saw in the Suez crisis of 1956. Really, the British Empire endured such as it endured only American sufferance, I think, after the war. Well, let's bring this right up to date, because we have lots of talk of Russian aggression, and of course, especially in terms of Ukraine today. But what are the legacies of Stalin's Cold War aggressions? Do we think that we could even say that Stalin made our modern world, and a lot of the geopolitical decisions and tensions that are there today, are as a result of Stalin's own successes? 
Well, Stalin certainly did redraw the map of Eastern Europe. It's been uh, perhaps redrawn, obviously, again, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. We certainly are living with the legacy of those Soviet conquests and the redrawing of the map of Eastern Europe. I suppose in the end, it didn't all endure. Perhaps the status of the three Baltic countries is now going to be renegotiated. One doesn't know for sure how this current crisis will play out regarding NATO membership for the Baltic countries or the prospect of NATO membership for Ukraine, which is obviously something of a hot potato and seen as almost a casus belli, I think, by the Kremlin today. The area in which I think I'd be cautious about overdrawing the parallel is that the Soviet Union, circa 1945 to about 1950, was, despite the human losses in the war, was, of course, strategically speaking, in a position of extreme power and influence. I mean, almost a kind of a peak. One might look back to the days of the Tsars with Russian troops occupying Paris in 1814 and say, well, look, this was a time when Russia was even more powerful to some extent than it was under Stalin. I don't think that Putin's Russia revanchist as it might be vis-a-vis either eastern Ukraine or a little bit earlier, of course, Crimea, bears the same type of relation to either Europe or the rest of the world as I think the Stalinist Soviet Union did in the late 40s and early 50s. To some extent, that is, I think, whatever we want to call the doctrine of the U.S. and its allies, whether containment at times rollback, we shouldn't forget the fact that the U.S. and its allies did win the Cold War fairly decisively, even if Russia's perhaps now beginning to maneuver towards rectifying certain aspects of the settlement that the Russians weren't satisfied with. We should remind ourselves that Russia on the map today is still much smaller than the Soviet Union was during the Cold War, much less powerful than it was in the late Stalin years, and perhaps less powerful than it was even in the days of the Tsars going back to the 19th century. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time for debunking so many myths around Stalin and Stalin's war. Tell us the name of the book and where people can buy it. The name of the book is Stalin's War, I think, in the UK edition. There's not a subtitle in the US. We call it A New History of World War II. It should be available in all fine bookstores. Well, Sean, thank you so much. And of course, yes, go out there and support your local bookshops where you can. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks so much, James. Thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.